Welcome to another edition of Henry Conversations. I am your host, Michael Watson, and I have the privilege of directing the Paul Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My conversation partner today is Dr. Alan Noble, who, like myself, hails from the great golden state of California and is currently an associate professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Alan grew up in Lancaster, California, went to Antelope Valley, and then finished his undergrad and did an MA at Cal State Bakersfield before moving to Waco to pursue a doctorate in English at Baylor University. Along the way, he married Brittany, and they have three children, Eleanor, Quentin, and Franny. In addition to writing in the Guild scholarly works on figures like F. Scott Fitzgerald, J.D. Salinger, and Cormac McCarthy, Alan has written two books with InterVarsity Press, Disruptive Witness in 2018, and the book we'll be talking a bit about today, You Are Not Your Own. I should also mention Alan has been very involved with Christ in pop culture, to put it mildly. He's an advisor to the AND campaign, and he's written for a slew of outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, World Magazine, Slate, Politico, MSNBC. And I could go on and on, but I sense Alan's going to get uncomfortable if I continue with that. So for appreciation for you, Alan, I will stop there and just say thank you for joining me for a Henry conversation. Thank you. I, I don't think I've actually published in the New York Times. Um, Fake I've news. Yeah, I don't know. I've actually just sent in an op-ed hoping that they'll look at it and publish it. So maybe by the time this comes out, I it will be true. Maybe it's prophetic. Well, here's a, so this is a good opportunity for, for us to, to let our, our dozens and dozens of listeners know that normally we could edit that out, but I think we'll just leave that in to show my own fallibility in case they, were, they had any doubts about that. So I think that's great. Maybe I, I've named it and we'll claim it, right? That this <laughs> <laughs> I prefer that. Yeah. Um, well, is there anything that we've missed? So we we, we do know each other. Um, we met, I think, online a number of years ago. Uh, we're both from California. We both have a Baylor background. My first child was born in Waco. Your first two children were born in, in Waco. Yeah. Uh, we're both fans of Cormac McCarthy. I'm an amateur, and you've, you've written on him professionally. Uh, we both like sports, but we know they can be kind of ridiculous. That's true. Anything else I should mention? No, no. That's that's good. I just I'm looking forward to at some point coming back up to Calvin. I don't know for what, but it's, there's got to be something. Well, we keep you know we have the Festival of Faith and Writing that I think you've come up for before, and yeah. unfortunately that has been um, that's been canceled this year. Or I think it's going to be online. I should say for various reasons related to the pandemic. We we do yeah. have the Henry Symposium in April on faith and politics. So maybe that's something you and I could talk about afterwards at some point if that might be of interest. So you're doing that in person. So, Lord willing, we are still planning <laughs> to do that in person. Um, yeah, that's great. So, we'll, yeah, we'll see what, what happens. That's cool. uh, the first thing I need to do, Alan, I, I need to make a confession. Make a confession. Yeah. So I, I first came across you and your work. I think it was through Christ and Pop Culture or, or social media. And this was probably in the early teens. And one thing that struck me was that you were very concerned about some really dark corners of the internet and some pretty ugly things that were being said and these uh, posting boards. And, and my first thought was, this seems to be overblown, right? This, you know, these, these things are kind of isolated. And I I thought you might be overly concerned about the lack of civility or ugliness. uh, But I have to, this is my confession over the last six or seven years, I have come to realize that you were right 
and I was wrong. And so I just want to start off by making that admission. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've had that uh, conversation with a couple of people. Yeah, I, I wish that were the other way around. I wish I had been wrong. Because at the time, I remember thinking, am I focusing too much on these sort of fringe groups on social media? Because I just, I, you know, I am fascinated by people. And, and I saw people who identified basically with my faith who were pursuing what I considered fringe political beliefs. And, and it just, it was attracting to me just to, just to see and observe and try to figure out what's motivating them and how popular this is. And yes, yeah, I would say that after the last few years, um, I guess I wasn't crazy uh, for doing that. <laughs> I, I would, I would affirm that. So um, let me, let me, let me also say, I, I think your book is titled "You Are Not Your Own: Belonging to God in an Inhuman World," and I wonder if you were consciously or unconsciously kind of trolling Calvin faculty with your title. "You Are Not Your Own," and, and here's why: you know, so our many, again, many scores and scores of our listeners probably already know this, but Calvin faculty are required, and of course, we are happy to do this to affirm three Reformed confessions in addition to the great ecumenical creeds, the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism. And you took the title of your book from the Heidelberg. And, and I got to be honest, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I read anything about Calvin University in the book. I'm looked in the index. And can you help <laughs> me, you know, solve this puzzle? That's true. I didn't, I did not think about Calvin. You know, I think the Heidelberg, it, it goes back a little further than Calvin University. So that's why. That's fair. That's, that's where. I, so I didn't feel compelled. I didn't feel like Calvin owned it, but uh, maybe I was wrong. No, no, that's that's probably fair. I, I thought I would try and give you a little bit of a hard time after after confessing um, how you were right about the other thing. <laughs> so the other thing I'll say, and 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 then I will get a little bit more serious. Uh, you know. I, the listeners can't see this, but I am wearing a tie and you're wearing yeah. a tie. I think I, I was inspired of that by a comment you made somewhere at some point that perhaps things started really to go wrong in our <laughs> culture when men stopped wearing ties to work. Um, <laughs> am I right in thinking that you said that? And, and I did. Now, uh, correlation does, is not causation, but it's not not causation, right? <laughs> like we don't know. I mean, I do think there has been a certain kind of decline uh, some progress in some other ways, but some decline too, since uh, men have stopped wearing ties and hats. So I think this is a, it's a distinct possibility. I don't know. It's not the reason. Well, I, I have to say that all of my listeners who are social science affiliated folks are pleased to, to hear you say that about causation and correlation. <laughs> I had mentioned a while ago somewhere on social media that between you getting that Tim Keller blurb on your book and coming on to it for Henry Conversation, you know, in terms of the PR, the book seems to be doing pretty well, those two things together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think the publisher is pretty happy when, when I told them I was going to be on this podcast. Um <laughs> Yeah. Outstanding. Uh, so in all seriousness, I, I do have to say I found this an incredibly salient, moving and powerful book. In order to, to do some last minute prep, I had to grab it away from my wife, you know, the last couple of days. And so I want to talk a little bit about this book. What is the problem with owning ourselves such that you more or less diagnose this condition in, in the first roughly half of the book? And you, you use oh. the phrase, the responsibilities of self-belonging. So what, why, if I'm coming to this, if I'm a student or why should I think that there's a problem with the fact that I think I am my own, I, I have control over myself, I have autonomy. Um, why is that a problem? 
I think, you know, and maybe this is just my personal experience with students, but, but I've found so far that most of them already know this, uh, but they might not be able to put language on it. So, for example, if you were to ask them, um, do you think it's not good to be autonomous, to be your own? They would probably say, no, it, it is good to be, to be autonomous. But when you actually start asking them, what makes you anxious? What are the things that give you anxiety, that stress you out, that overwhelm you? It really fundamentally all comes down to the the obligation to carry your own being in the world, to be responsible, 100% responsible for your presence in the world. It's significant. It's value. It's um, your your presence, your um, your identity. All of these things are the things that just absolutely wear students down. Um, and so, uh, so for example, I was just in class and a, a student uh, ranted to, to all of us uh, the fact that they had been taught, she was referring to herself and her classmates that their entire life, that if they just try hard enough, that they can be what they, whatever they want to be, that they can be the best version of themselves. They just have to you know, put their mind to it and focus. And we're all capable of doing that. And they said, this is not true. We've been taught this. Uh, essentially, this idea that um, by yourself, you can pull yourself up, you can become something um, great, and that you have the moral responsibility to do that. Hmm. And she said, it's, it's, it's nonsense, and it's making her anxious and depressed and, and, and so on. And I thought, and I said, uh, I have a book for you. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. So, well, let's, so let's say I am a Christian, right? And hmm. I, I know in my head that I'm not my own, right? I've been bought with a price. I know if I'm familiar with the Heidelberg that I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. And if I if I know all that as a proposition, why do I have a hard such a hard time living in our modern world? Why isn't that that head knowledge enough such that I, it's it's more smooth sailing than it otherwise would be? I mean, you, you go into some detail in the book about about this. So why why isn't the propositional knowledge enough? Yeah, it, it well when we are being when the practices that we're asked to adopt by the rest of society say the opposite and when we are given the opposite message perpetually from all kinds of sources eventually it, that head knowledge is just it's just fundamentally not enough and it's it is meaningful though and I and I do think and this is part of the goal of the book that if we get better at labeling messages from the world that say you are your own you're responsible for yourself uh, so if you're a failure it's your fault if you're a success that you know congratulations the better we get at sort of labeling these things and understanding that we are dependent upon God that does give us some some agency to push back against those lies however the, the lies are still going to come. And so the example I like to give is, and one of the things that sort of sparked this book was when my wife, who has two master's degrees, one in math and one in economics, was staying home with our kids for, for a year. Uh, she has, again, two advanced degrees, so she's highly intelligent. But it's hard to find work that's part-time that is high-quality work. It's easy to find part-time work that doesn't require an education, but if you're educated, it's kind of hard because they expect you to devote your career, your life to this great ambition, whatever it is. So she's home for a year and my wife has this head knowledge. She knows that her worth before God has absolutely nothing to do with her career, or at least that's to say achieving a certain kind of excellence in a career. That's not why God loves her, and that doesn't make her life valuable. And yet every time she met another adult, 
uh, they always asked her the question, so what is it that you do? Because that's just what we, that's just what we ask. And even right. if they were fairly conservative and they liked the idea that my wife was staying home with our kids, when my wife said, well, you know, I'm a you know, stay-at-home mom right now, um, you could tell that they were kind of disappointed or, or that they were no longer interested in her. So they might say, well, what does your husband do? As oh. if to say, Jeez. I have nothing more to say to you. You're, you're no longer interesting. Or, or your life essentially is on pause. Even if I think it's a good thing, there's nothing more for me to get out of this relationship. So here, my wife, every time she's interacting with adults, meeting a new adult, she's getting this message that she is her own and she really ought to be focused on being her own, pushing aside the needs and obligations of our family and pursuing her career so that other adults would validate her. She knows that's a lie, but it's still hard when everyone treats her that way. So that's what makes it difficult. Yeah, well, it, it strikes me it's not like Waco and Shawnee would be super progressive parts of our country, right? Right. I mean, this would also be just as likely to happen in the in the church as not, would you say? Yes. Yeah. And so those conversations were mostly with other Christians. And again, Christians who, I think if you were to ask them, do you think it's good for mothers to stay home with their children? They would be like, yes, absolutely. But again, if our practices, if the way we think about each other, uh, if if we've bought into this idea that we fundamentally belong to ourselves, we're probably perpetuating it within the church as well. Right. I want to ask you about, this is an article that came out a couple of weeks ago, um, and I don't know that you would have seen it or not, but Yuval Levin wrote an article at the Dispatch, and he was he was responding to some survey data that had been done post-COVID about people's interest in uh, getting married and in having kids. And throughout your book, it's interesting, you the marriage and, and sex comes up here and there in different ways to illustrate your, your thesis and your points. And the findings of the survey were that, that people who tend to be upper class, people who tended to be more conservative, and people who were religious um, had a slight uptick in interest in marriage and about the same on kids, but lower socioeconomic classes, uh, significant decline on, on both those questions. And he, in his article, he, he, he distinguishes between societies for which the, the challenge is restraining excess of desire. So people going out and wanting too much and, and overdoing it. And thus, we have to have boundaries about around sex or around striving. And he says that we actually are facing a new sort of problem now, it seems like, which is a passivity problem uh. that, that we, we don't want to step out. We don't want to take risks. And it, it's, it struck me as, as some parallels, perhaps, with, with your book. If we think we own ourselves, if, and if that's the, the message that's just drilled into us, even unconsciously over and over, and if society has been built on that assumption, uh, it seems like it, lead, it could lead us on the one hand to overdo it in trying to create our own meaning, right? Yep. And yes. uh, on the other hand, we could just say nuts to that. And, and it's you, you have this language of, of the way of affirmation and the way of resignation. I wonder if you if you find that that parallel something there. Absolutely, yes. So I did I did read that article and and emailed him about it. Said, can I send you my book? And he said, yes. Uh, because I I saw those same parallels. I thought it was it was very fascinating because I do think that um, so where I would sort of push back or at least qualify what he's saying is I I think we have a society that does need to have restraints that is uh, still seeking desires but and that sort of corresponds with what I talk about this 
this is this way of affirmation where you think fundamentally society works. So I mentioned earlier that student in the class who said, we've been told these things. If I just work hard enough and improve myself perpetually, then eventually I'll, uh, I'll achieve my dreams, right? So that's the way of affirmation. I can do it, the system, meritocracy, whatever, it, it basically works. I just have to work hard enough. And if I don't succeed, it's my own fault. But many people who start down that road, when they hit the wall, which inevitably they do, they switch to the what I call this, this way of resignation, where you basically say, you know what, this is all rigged. Like, I can't, I can't win. I can't compete. I see this happen all the time with students who are really successful in high school, maybe a private high school or homeschool or whatever. And then they come to college and they realize there's a lot of smarter people around me. I'm not among the elite, which is okay if you understand that you're not your own. But if you are your own and you have to make something of your existence, then all of a sudden, everyone else is a threat to you. Everyone else is in competition for approval, for affirmation, for attention, for uh, accolades, all these sorts of things. So what can happen is you despair and you think, okay, well, if this system doesn't work, if I can't compete for love and attention and accolades, then I'm just going to tap out. I'm just going to do something else. And what's interesting is that we, because of technology and the low cost of entertainment today, you can functionally tap out of society. You can say, I'm just going to work a very basic job, and that job will be enough for you to pay your rent, eat, and pay for the internet access that will let you participate in all kinds of things, video games, pornography, YouTube, you know, whatever it might be where you can feel some sense of validation and you're, you know, you're still getting pleasure and entertainment, but what we would do, the rest of society on, from the outside, we would say, uh, well, actually you've given up on life, hmm. which is what I, th you know, in, at least in part what he's talking about in that, in that article. Yeah. So it's that, that option, even the interactions you do have, they might be very meaningful, the online communities or gaming communities or these, are, but it's all curated, right? It's all, yeah. um, you you can check out any time. You can you can move on. You present yourself in particular ways. So I expect as people read read your book, uh, it will hit people differently, different spots. Um, for me and in, in, in my house, uh, the, you have a, a a little bit of a riff here on the "I just need to" oh. um, phrase that we we say to ourselves. Uh, and uh, could you tell us a little bit about the "I just need to"? Yeah. Um, and, and why that struck you. And I almost thought, you know, occasionally my wife and I will go to church and, and the sermon will be so on point. We're like, the, the pastor, is he got, is he bugged our house? And on this, uh -huh. I thought it's Alan kind of <laughs> listening in. Cause this, this hit us really, really, really well. I would love to know where this comes from. There's, there must be, I suspect some, some basic text, right. That were, or film or TV show or something that we're all getting this from. You know, at the beginning of this book, I stress something, try to address a misnomer that I think I unintentionally created with the first book, which is all about technology primarily, not all about it, but a lot of it is. And I kept getting these questions. People would ask me after giving talks like, well, what, what are the perfect rules for using technology that I can give to my kids or I could use myself? What, what do you do? And I realized that people assumed that I knew like that I was a guru. <laughs> and I and, and so the beginning of this book, I've, I state very clearly, I'm not a guru. And and if there's anything meaningful in this that that resonates with you, it's because it's in my head. It's because I've lived through it. 
Now, now that's not to say that I'm not actively working on these things. I am, but there, you know, there's some kinds of books, and I read a number of them to write this. Uh, there are some kinds of books where it's that you know the person says, "I'm going to go out to solve this problem," and they survey all the experts, and they come back and say, "I've got the answers. Here are the Ten Commandments. I'm coming down from the mountain. Just follow these." And that's not this kind of book. So the reason um, I riff on this idea is because I find myself throughout the day to answer your question saying things like, you know, I just need to answer these emails. What is it for me today? Uh, I just need to get my textbook requests in for next semester. Right. I just need to, you know, to get back home and fix the broken window. My son put his hand through a window this morning. Perfectly oh. fine. No blood, not even a scratch. How does that even happen? I told him it was a miracle, but he still put his hand through a window that needs to be replaced. I just need to get the window replaced. I just need to exercise. I'm 40 years old. I just turned 40. I just need to exercise. I've got, you know, blood pressure or something. I can't even remember what it is that I've got. I've got to start worrying about these things now. And there's always another thing. There's right. always another thing. Just this morning, I got an email from the utilities people in at, at, at Shawnee that said, your credit card was declined because my card was identity got stolen like a month ago. And for some reason, it took this long. And so now I'm like, I just need to make sure that our water doesn't get cut off. And any one of these, you would say, it's None of these are a big deal, Alan. Like, why do you even care? Like, okay, yes, sure. What I'm talking about is this feeling that there's always one more and that there's this horizon that you're working towards. If you just get over this one hill, then you can rest. Then you can have biblical rest. You can have peace. You can know I'm safe. I've done enough. I'm okay. And in a society that says, really, you're on your own, you never get that. That's just the normal daily experience of life is I just need to. I just need right. to improve myself a little bit more. Then I'll, I will arrive. And it never happens. Yeah, no, that nails it. I mean, I, I, for me, it's I, I got to get these papers graded or I got to get this part of the house fixed or we got to get. And my wife and I have talked about it. It's like, look, we're going to get our kids off to college and then hope some of them, you know, it, there is no, there's no end point, right? It's, no. <laughs> um, and one of the most interesting dynamics that I thought you brought out in the book is you have a, um, you know, you talk quite a bit about efficiency and technique. And if we look at the technological advances of the last hundred years and all the time-saving things, we have so many things that save us time. And yet in that time that's been opened up, our, our experience of that, as you talk about in the book, seems to be that much more crowded with things that we feel like we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. So technique, I mean, technology always fills the space that technology frees up. I mean, there's just always going to be something else because you can always do, you can always do more. So I think, all right, so we're both teachers in the universities. Uh, I just had an interesting conversation with a student about attendance. So when I start, when I was in college, um, you know, you would have a sheet and the professor would, you know, call off your name and check it off. And that was that. Well, now, because of technological advances, we can track attendance and we're expected to take attendance every day and students can get live updates. In fact, they can have notifications when I mark them tardy. And so sometimes uh, sometimes I'll have a student show up late to class because I marked them absent. And all of a sudden they decided, well, I guess I better show up. Um, so here, this this system should save us time. But actually having all of these things, grades and attendance, so easily accessible online, and in particular, I think, sending students notifications about things like their grades, it ends up actually creating more things to do. 
Mm. And now all of a sudden, universities can track attendance for every student in every class intricately, uh, where otherwise universities would never think to do that because it's just, it's impractical. So that's, that's what happens. Like when you can do more because you've created efficiencies, we're going to do more. You see this in every field. Any place you can collect data, you're going to be asked to collect data. And the more data we can collect and retain and analyze, we're going to, you know, that's just always going to continue. And I guess, I guess what I'm trying to push back on is the idea that it's automatically good, that, that it's our default to adopt all of these things. Right. Um, I'm not saying that they're always bad because they're not always bad, but if we're just adopting them, then we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, you're skirting very close to a third real topic for me for these, which is assessment. And I'm not going to go there, one, because I would hurt my own feelings. And then people who aren't uh, you know, familiar with how college and universities work will, will tune out immediately. So, But no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. One of the um, one of the things that you say, interestingly, this, this I just need to, in some ways, is a way of coping, right? Because mm-hmm. um, it, it's, a, it's a promise of, of hope that we will get to the, the end of the line at some point and be able to rest. But you have a, an interesting take on on how we self-medicate to deal with the stress of trying to build our own lives if we own ourselves. Um, And when I first hear self-medicate, I think, well, of course, all the obvious things. But what you do, you say a little bit about, you say it's actually more than just the obvious things. It's not just what we would think of as the person who might drink a little bit too much or do this, that, or the other. But this idea that we all, in in this world that is built against the grain of how we're designed to live, we find these coping mechanisms, which often aren't very healthy for us. Yeah. So at the beginning of the book, I give this analogy about zoocosis, which is the condition that zoo animals get when um, they're, they don't cope psychologically with being caged. And I talk about that there's this built-in irony of these environments in zoos that are very, very, very intentionally by the by the best experts who know what does a lion or a bear need to live, they've developed these environments and yet this animal will pace in circles obsessively all day long. Well, it's interesting in studying this, you know, for the book, one of the things that I that I read was that uh, often to treat zoocosis, where this animal is pacing obsessively all day long because they're stuck in this environment that was not built for them. To cope with it, they uh, give these animals antidepressants and enrichment activities. Mm. And when I heard that, I thought, uh, I'm afraid that's me. Like, I'm afraid that's because I feel like when 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 society puts all these obligations on me, these responsibilities of self-belonging and I'm overwhelmed, I feel like their primary response is, well, to deal with that, here's some some antidepressants or here's some things to distract you. And both, I want to say, are forms of self-medicating. And by which I'm not necessarily saying that they're they're always unhealthy. I don't think that they're always unhealthy. But I do suspect it's the case. It's just as I'm thinking about my own life and hearing the way my students and friends talk, it seems like we say to ourselves, you know, I, I just need to get through the day. And so we'll use that phrase to justify, you know, eating a pint of ice cream or, or binge watching, you know, Netflix for hours and hours and hours or, or obsessively exercising, mm. right? It, it can be things that done in proper proportions are actually really good for us. Like actually, I think eating desserts and watching good entertainment can be good for us. But but when you begin to think that you can't function, you can't keep up with all the demands that you've been given, um, then you're going to do something to distract yourself, to numb yourself, to give yourself some kind of pleasure. And uh, I, I do think that, you know, it's probably a little bit of a hyperbole to say we all self-medicate. 
which is you know one of the sections of the book. But I only think it's a little bit of a hyperbole. I, I do think that most of us are, are using one coping mechanism or another. And you, and you're right. You know sometimes the the old classics, you know, alcohol or substance abuse. But I think if we pull back, we can recognize that there are lots of ways to self-medicate, to numb yourself. And, and here's what they all have in common. They don't address the root problem, right? right? So these are ways of, of getting through the day rather than acknowledging, wow, this, this does not work. This idea of belonging to myself does not work. I want to jump there from something you said. You said, I'm afraid that's me. Um, and one of the things I, I, I'm curious in terms of writing the book, you draw on scholars, literature, uh, Christian confessions, but you also interweave your own your own life. It's not a it's not a autobiography by any means, but you are not afraid to be personal while still drawing from these other sources of information. You mentioned the the animals of the zoo. I'm just curious, as in terms of thinking about how you put together, how do you how do you think about putting a book like this together such that you're you're both doing the drawing from your own life, right, but also touching on these these other sources of, of figures that you've read or admired or, or data that that's out there? So um, we all have different strengths and weaknesses. I am not qualified to be a, a great scholar. Uh, I've met great scholars. I've, I've seen them. I've seen the way their minds work. I've seen their work ethic and their brilliance, the way they can read and understand things. Um, and that's great. But I, I, going to grad school at Baylor, I, I learned pretty quickly. I'm, I'm not, I'm not that sharp, which is okay. That's not necessarily a bad thing because what I, I do have that I think could be valuable is that I, I care about where all these big ideas meet the road. That's, that's what interests me. And that's one of the reasons I wrote two trade books so far is that I care about how all of these questions affect my wife, my kids, myself, my friends, my students. Um, and so, uh, for me, this just feels natural because this is actually what I'm thinking about is I am interested in big ideas. So I'm, I am reading scholars like Jackie Lule and, and figuring out what they have to say. But, but I'm also asking the question, what does this have to do with my life? Like, how, how does this connect? How does this explain things? Because to me, that's what really matters. So, you know, I'm very grateful for, for amazing scholars like people like Elul, like Charles Taylor, who devote their lives to this great kind of thinking. Um, but I, I see it as my contribution, if anything, is trying to understand those things and make them real and physical and, and kind of existential and, you know, a, a real lived experience. And so, it just was natural to me. I don't know if that's not much of an answer, but that's that's what it is. I think it's a great answer. I, I don't know that I want to buy, you say I'm not that sharp or something like that. I don't know if I want to buy that line of comparison. I think it's more division of labor. There you go. I'm also self-interested in saying that because I've also run across the people whose books will be read 100 years from now and 200 right. years from now. And and I'm okay that realizing that that won't be me. Right. But if I can take some of those ideas and and make them available in a way that otherwise might not be to our students and to our each other, then then yes. that's that's a pretty good gig. Um, yes. Yeah. So, roughly about halfway through the book, you switch gears a little bit from diagnosing, helping us see this this disconnect between how we are really meant to be and how the world is, um, and of course, the disconnects inside ourselves as well, given we're we are fallen. But you, you move a little bit from what moral and social and spiritual health might look like. What does it look like to, to know that we are not our own and to know whose we are? 
and you've already mentioned this a little bit. You said you're not a guru. Um, so we shouldn't expect a 10 point blueprint plan from you as to how to fix this. In yeah. fact, you say something to the effect of our very expectation that that is there is itself a result of modernity and technique uh-huh. and efficiency. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So we are trained, uh, maybe not intentionally, but it is just part of the air we breathe in society uh, to do a number of things. When we find a problem, whether it's a, a personal problem, a societal problem, a social problem, familiar problem, whatever it is, we say, okay, what exactly is the problem? We break it down to its component parts. And then we ask ourselves, how can we best respond to this problem? And then we try to implement that solution and then we reassess. Okay, was that effective? If not, okay, how can I improve? And, and our idea is, our assumption is that if we keep doing this process, this sort of cyclical process of, of, of identifying a problem, analyzing it, proposing solutions with the best available data, best speaking of you know, uh, college assessment, best practices, oh. and then we just keep going and going. And what will happen is... Yeah, we're not going to solve the problem the first round, but if we collectively work with this strategy, we will eventually get over the hump and then things will be solved. And I guess I just want to say that that is a, a modernist assumption, an assumption grounded uh, with a certain idea of what what problems are. For example, the idea that they are discrete, that we can, that there are problems, that all problems can be carefully defined and categorized, measured. And then we can offer very discrete solutions that will move us uh, uh, forward. And I just think, you know, the, the longer I live, the more I feel like, okay, yeah, there are problems like that, but there are a lot of problems that aren't like that. And what I'm trying to describe in that first half of the book, uh, an ideology, an anthropology, an understanding that we are basically our own, that's not something that a five-point plan can, can resolve. I have, though, I cannot imagine a way of uh, realistically fixing this. And so I just disavow that from the beginning. Yeah. So, so in between, say, complete apathy, right, we, like we never try to solve any problems, and this sort of Whiggish hope that, you know, through, through effort and progress in history, we're going to get to, you know, the yeah. promised land here on Earth, uh, there's got to be a, there's got to be some place to not, if not solve it, but find a healthier way. And, and you talk about prodigality. And right. I always have a wonder after I've said it, if I pronounce it correctly, but uh, well, you're an English professor, so you should know. I'm not a pronouncing professor though. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but could you, could you say a little bit about, I mean, that is, that strikes me as one of the, it's not, here's how we solve this, but it's yeah. an idea that helps us try and flourish with it. So, so if we think about, um, our, our basic or, our, or one of our common postures today is efficiency, which is a little connects to uh, technique, right? So we tend to think as a kind of default that whatever we're doing, if there's a more efficient way to do it, then we ought to do that. And so with the idea of prodigality, I'm suggesting that maybe, uh, again, this isn't a solution, but maybe if we work on valuing something other than efficiency, I actually do think that this will help push back against a, 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 a really a fundamentally toxic anthropology. So for example, if we accept the fact that, that efficiency is not the highest good, that there are other goods like, like love, like beauty, like truth, and that those goods will at times mean that we should not be as efficient as we, we possibly can be, that we should actually slow down. 
If we start practicing that, I think it's a way of, of resisting. And as Christians, this is part of what we're commanded to do. I mean, the Sabbath, Sabbath rest is an example of this. From a, a strictly materialist, secular perspective, it's a stupid idea. It's not a good use of your energy, right? You should be, you should be productive. Now, somebody might come along and say, well, Alan, that's not true. Actually, there have been studies done that show that if you rest one day out of seven, you are more productive during the rest of the week. And that is, again, uh, we, we tend to do things like this, uh, even in the church, right? We tend to want to say, well, it turns out that if you're a good Christian, you're also highly efficient. Sometimes that's true, but sometimes not. So, for example, to, to that, I would ask, uh, well, uh, what if, uh, because of medical advancements, we're able to be productive, equally productive, seven days a week? Uh, through supplements and medications or things like this, is rest actually still a good? And as Christians, we have to say, mm, yes, yes. It doesn't matter if there's a more efficient way to work. God tells us that we should rest one day of the week than, than we ought to. And it is prodigal because it's, it's lavish. It's wasteful. You're saying, God, I know that you can provide for me. So even though I should be hustling and bustling and asking myself, you know, I just need to, I just need to, um, that's not true. Um, and so there's a way of, I think, valuing something other than efficiency, in this case, prodigality, that, that I think would be a healthy way of pushing back against this anthropology. Yeah. So if we think about, say, Chick-fil-A, right, which closes on Sundays, even if there was some study that showed that they are more productive and make more money because of that rest, that wouldn't be the right way to think about it, that that rest would be, it's a different sort of scale of economy as to why it's valuable. It can't be measured by, by profit, for example. Absolutely. And I, when I do think of practical applications, I think business, uh, Christian business owners, this is one thing that we can do. We can say, all right, we're going to make decisions for our employees and our customers that are good, regardless of what the data says. Like when, when they're good, we're going to do it. So uh, recently, about a month or so ago, Harvard Business Review had an article about uh, the top things that employees were asking for, the top benefits that employees were asking for, or, or uh, improvements in the office or whatever. And the number one thing was natural lighting. That's what employees wanted. They just wanted some sunlight. Uh, when I read that, I thought, that's that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. We're, 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 like, the sun is so basic to existence, but here we go. We're just saying, can I have a little bit of sunlight? Uh, but of course, if you work in an office that doesn't have a window, you know, man, that can get really depressing. Right. Now, the article, so, so I agree with the article. Yeah, people do need some sunlight. What was fascinating to me is after showing the evidence, employees really want sunlight. The article then goes on to say, also, you should give them the sunlight because studies have shown, and then it went on to talk about how it's actually efficient, how it increases their productivity. And I thought, man, that's so sad. Like you couldn't just say human beings, it's good for them to see the sun. And so right. if you're their employer, if, you, if it's possible to do this, you should get them sunlight. No, no, that's not enough. We have to justify it. And, and I think for the most part, any corporation, any big business, any big institution that uh, offers their employees some benefit, I think if you look at the language, you will often discover that somewhere buried in that press release, there will be some appeal to efficiency. We're giving you paid family leave because it turns out the employees that have paid family leave are more productive when they return to work. Something like that, you know? Yeah. And Christians shouldn't need to do that. We shouldn't. We just almost don't have the vocabulary to, to acknowledge that it could just be worth doing on some other metric, right? right. Um, yeah, no, I, I think about, you know, I now live in Grand Rapids. I grew up 
other places, much warmer. But I, one of the reasons I, I love the snow is it forces us to be inefficient. We have to slow down, right? Mm. And now I say that, I realize I'm a professor. I can be at home. I don't have to go out and work in the snow. So it's truly not true for everyone. But And now with the you know post-COVID technology, we would be more efficient even if we were at home, and we are. But I love the idea that we have to we do have to slow down. Now I should acknowledge my my uh, fellow Michiganders will will say, yeah, you don't see the sun much though for five months, and that's that's a fair point. I enjoy this book so much, and I, I risk having people think I'm just here to to ask you know questions I agree with. And I, so I want to ask one question. I think I might disagree with a little bit, which is you draw from Jacques Ellul and and associate the city with um, some of the, the the bad aspects of modernity and technique and efficiency. I mean, I just wonder, are, are you a little too hard on cities? I mean, might might there be something, obviously, you know, Kane does found the first city. There's a, there's a tainted legacy there. Uh, but we also have in the Revelation, it's not, a, we don't get a new garden, we get a new, we get a new city. So I, would you say right. a little bit, what does the city motif do in your argument or briefly on that? And then um, tell me why I'm I shouldn't think that this is a little bit problematic, that I, I shouldn't defend cities as much. Yeah, so I I am relying heavily on Elul, and uh, this is how I read Elul on cities. When he talks about a city, I think he's talking in literary terms uh, in some ways, and um, and by that I mean the city is not just the city. The city is anytime humans make this effort to be self-sufficient, to live without the hand of God uh, aiding them. And so I think Elul would say basically all of the West right now is a city. So here I am in Shawnee, Oklahoma, and coming from California, I would not say that Shawnee is a city. But for Elul, okay, with the infrastructure that we have, with the technology that we have, the ability to feel as if I live here on my own, that I provide for myself with my labor, I can support myself without the hand of God supporting me, that means that I'm in a city. So I don't think he's saying, and I'm certainly not saying, uh, you know, L.A. is terrible. L.A. is pretty bad. But, you know, that these that there's something necessarily problematic with cities themselves as opposed to the countryside. But cities, that idea of built, putting up walls, of being self-sufficient, of cutting yourself off, that is this, this model that we see in Cain and that, that I do think we see in modernity. Um, that that for for uh, for many of us that the idea of the city is the idea of the uh, the modern city. I just I'm teaching modernism right now, uh, literary modernism, and you know the idea of the city is this space of progress, of movement, of acceleration, of speed, of you know optimization. This place where if we just strive a little bit harder, we can improve and create a space where humans are living you know peacefully together and and flourishing. And Elul would say, yes, that's going to happen, but it's not going to be through human progress. It's going to be through God intervening. It's Christ's redemption. It's, it's his second coming that brings about the city in Revelation, the garden city in Revelation. It's not humans striving and fixing all of our problems and continuing to progress. Now, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that we don't have, Christians don't have the freedom to be indifferent. So that doesn't mean that we get to say, well, if we're not going to perfect human civilization, I can just sit back because this is all going to burn. That's not an option for us. We have the obligation to act where we have influence. We are obligated to seek the good of our neighbor and to honor God. And, and Elul talks about this. This is our responsibility. What's compelling to me about this, though, is 
that we don't get to say, well, I'm going to work to address, let's say, homelessness in Shawnee. I'm going to work to address this because I know how I'm going to fix this. I know I'm going to eliminate homelessness in my home city. Uh, Lou would say, no, as a Christian, you don't get to say that. The reason that you act to do good is because it's your responsibility to good to do good. It's not dependent on whether or not your your actions are going to actually fix everything. So to me, that's very freeing. So that's my defense of the city, of not the city. It's, it's a very good defense and it indicates uh, I, I misread it in the book. So listeners can can read the book and, and have a, a better understanding. It also, so not to be too uh, self-centered and bring it back to Calvin, but I think our, we encourage our Calvin students to be agents of renewal and want to send them off and equip them to to make a difference, but that can lead to a sort of overconfidence in that we'll be able to solve all these problems as if we're the ones who are going to do that. So I really appreciate that that measured sort of call towards faithfulness, but faithful presence more so than faithful oversight. Well, time, at least for me, has, has flown by. I think our time is yeah. coming close to, to, to an end. I would like to thank those of you who are listening for for listening to our conversation. I'd like to thank Alan for coming on. Alan, if people want to, to get a hold of your book, what do they do? Just any place where they would normally purchase books? Yep. Yep. You can go to University Press. That's a great place to buy it. Right. Okay. Good. And if they want to learn more about you, and again, this gets into this tricky question of social media and things like that, but are you on any social media platforms if someone wants to follow you or yeah, keep up with what you're up true. to? true. I am. Yeah. So, uh, olnnoble.com. I have a .com. So, uh, if you if once wanted, you could find my website there. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at uh, the Alan Noble. And, and I will say, uh, if you enjoy, or if you think you would enjoy, one of the most self-aware and ironic attempts to balance a social media presence with the knowledge that such things are rather ridiculous, um, Alan is a great follow. So I can I can say that. I'd also like to thank uh, Grace Lunger, my Henry Junior Research Fellow for this school year, who is handling our sound editing and filling the shoes of Sam Tewitt, who did it last year. We hope that you enjoyed our conversations this fall. We have several planned for the winter and spring of next year. Thanks for listening.